What's up, horror fans? Say no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening. We interrupt our program to bring you Final Girl Friday. Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. This week, I'll be looking at M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening, and I'll be asking the question, has the pandemic made The Happening less terrible? You guys wanted me to talk about this. You voted for it, because... You love to torture me, apparently, so the happening is what I will be talking about today. No, 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 no. I've also recently fallen in love with a social networking app, of all things, which I have been dying to share with you. I'll wrap things up with what, for me, are a couple of exciting announcements regarding this podcast, including May's B-Movie of the Month and details regarding its accompanying giveaway. If you're new to the podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. As usual, if you haven't seen The Happening from 2008, proceed with caution. I will most definitely be spoiling the entire film for you. All right, first things first, this app that I cannot seem to shut up about. I think I have driven Alan beyond the brink. This may sound like a sponsored segment. Uh, it is not. I know I have a tendency to sound like I'm trying to sell you a car when I get really worked up about things, um, but this isn't sponsored or anything. I, I genuinely just really love this app. I've had a lot of fun with it this week, and just I can't wait any longer to share it with you guys. I stumbled upon a list from Slasher.tv entitled 50 Plus Things for Horror Fans to Do During a Pandemic. It's a great list, and I knew right away I would want to mention it here, especially because it isn't just movie recommendations. This one includes music, books, podcasts, YouTube channels, all kinds of good shit to keep us busy while we're crawling out of our skin at home. And at the very top of that list is a social networking app appropriately called Slasher. Despite my complicated relationship with platforms like Twitter and Instagram, I'm just not the biggest fan of social media outlets in general, and I found that a lot of the fandom communities online aren't nearly as active as is ideal, but I was intrigued by Slasher, so I installed it, created a profile, and within just a couple of hours, I had made like 50 friends. I was having about a half a dozen separate conversations about movies with just genuinely kind and welcoming people, and I felt like I had at least in the realm of social platforms, come home. It's been such an awesome experience. And it isn't just the ease with which I'm meeting new people there that sells me. Slasher also provides its community with a truly staggering list of horror-related content that kept me so busy, I took a week off from the podcast. <laughs> like, that's how preoccupied I have been with the new stuff I'm discovering through Slasher. It's the reason I didn't post a new episode last Friday. <laughs> There's the Final Boys podcast, the Maniacs and Monsters blog, um, the fan film Scream for Your Life from Lunar Light Cinema, music from Gory Rory, the YouTube channel Bloody Breakdown, that's just a small handful of the content I've been turned on to through this network. And the app's creator, Damon, is both a genre nut himself and an avid supporter of independent creators, hence the list I mentioned earlier, which also just relaxes me as someone who is both a podcaster and a fan of the genre, as I don't really feel like I have to separate the two when I'm there. I can just be myself. I can be a fangirl and a content creator without feeling pressured 
pressured to prioritize one over the other, if that makes sense. Slasher allows you to build a virtual library of films you've seen, upload photos and GIFs, and create personal posts in much the same way you would on Facebook or Twitter, uh, stay up to date on horror news and events. In fact, the event calendar is kind of how the community started, which I think plays a big part in its atmosphere of togetherness. And it even has a dating feature for all you spooky singles out there, which I just think is neat. The app is free and there are ads, but the ads are really non-invasive. I barely notice them. In an interview with author Eliana Poe back in March, Damon said of the app, it turned out far better than I could ever have imagined. The people, the real sense of community, the way it's affecting others, this is something you can't plan. Of course, there's so much more coming, but where it is right now is something very special and I'm extraordinarily grateful for it. You can read that entire interview, by the way, at authorelianapoe.com. I've linked it in this episode's description. And Damon has every right to be proud of what he has created. In just the short time I've spent at Slasher, I have had an absolute blast. I've met some seriously great people and more than a few horror fans, myself now among them, accredit the community with helping them cope with what's happening in the world right now. So if you haven't already done it, I highly recommend downloading this app or check out slasher.tv for more information about it and that list of things to do for just a taste of what the community has to offer. I'm glad that I was finally able to pry myself away from the app long enough to talk about how much I love it and to record an episode of my fucking podcast. I've just been so distracted. I've been having such a great time meeting people. Thank you for building a truly kick-ass community, Damon. I am so stoked to be a part of it. The time has come to talk about the happening. I think it is important to note, in the interest of transparency, I cannot stand M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I am comforted by the knowledge that I am not even remotely alone in that. As a champion of the unpopular opinion, it is nice to know that in this particular case, I am in the majority. <laughs> Any affection that he may have garnered from me, you know, through his films was obliterated by this interview that he gave for the Showbiz 411 like a decade ago. I'm very used to kind of getting on a plane from the US having been savaged by them and then going to, like in this case, I went to Japan next and then they're like, genius. He says so many stupid things in the interview. It's ridiculous. He, uh, it's one of the most cringe-worthy interviews I think I have ever seen given by a celebrity of any kind. <laughs> Prior to us deciding that I would talk about this film today, um, I hadn't seen The Happening in many years. And the last time that I had seen it, it had only been a couple of months since I had first seen that interview. So I was not in a position to find the fun in anything that Shyamalan was a part of at the time. And then after the first wave of stay-at-home orders were issued and we started seeing all of those recommendation lists cropping up everywhere, you know, of like pandemic-appropriate movies and, and just films that are great to watch right now that can help us cope with what's happening in the world, I noticed that more than a couple of them unironically included The Happening, and this intrigued me. <laughs> it also kind of made me question everything I had come to know about life, and I started wondering, has the pandemic made The Happening suck less? 
Does living through a global health crisis improve the film in some way? And most importantly, could watching The Happening actually help me deal? So these were the questions I found myself asking a couple of weeks ago. And so I turned to you guys on Patreon. I put my fate in your hands and I thought, if I'm supposed to investigate this matter any further, my my patrons will lead the way. Um, and you did. And I'm glad that you did because by some miracle, The Happening has become... A really enjoyable film. It is still one of the single worst movies I have ever seen in my entire life, but it has become so bad that it's good. So yay! Whether or not the pandemic has made the movie any less terrible, I will address that question along the way and hopefully have some kind of a clear opinion by the end. The Happening was released on June 13th, 2008, with a budget of somewhere between 48 and $60 million. The internet can't seem to make up its mind uh, about exactly how much it costs to make this film, though I do suspect that regardless of what the actual number was, um, a good portion of the budget was spent on stock footage of clouds. The Happening tells the story of an environmental event uh, which causes a rash of mass suicides all across the northeastern United States. The film grossed $163.4 million worldwide, and it is the only film by M. Night Shyamalan to be given an R rating, which I just found odd. I mean, I don't know if it serves as a testament to 2008, but there just is nothing about this movie that feels R-rated to me. There's some brutality in it. But overall, I think the film actually feels quite wholesome <laughs> compared to a lot of other horror movies out there. So I don't know. I was just taken aback by the R rating. I do want to address the debate that has been sort of an ongoing thing for years. Some people believe, and Shyamalan would have us believe, that he actually did intentionally make this film to be bad. And he did say just a few days before the film hit theaters that he was sort of poking fun at the horror genre with this film, that it was meant to be funny. I personally think that that is absolute bullshit. <laughs> I don't believe it for even a second. I think he realized how bad the reviews would be, and he tried to save face by claiming that it was a farce. And I have to believe that. What makes The Happening so funny is everything it tries to do and does wrong. It's stuff that just cannot be intentional, especially because if it was intentional, then it would mean that Shyamalan is in fact a genius, and I refuse to live in a world where that is the case. The Happening opens with what looks like as I mentioned, a bunch of time-lapsed stock footage of clouds. Yes, this is a movie about killer plants, but it would have made too much sense to show plant life during the opening credits. And as we quickly learn, this movie has a massive nonsense quota to meet, so it doesn't waste any time with thematic consistency. It's true that clouds are a part of nature and affected by the wind, which works in tandem with the plants to kill people. So I mean, it kind of works in theory, but the whole nature versus man vibe is so thoroughly muddled by everything else in the film that the opening credits just add to that. And it isn't just the clouds that confuse the audience from the very beginning. The music works hard to do the same. It starts out okay, but it swells and intensifies until it feels more like the opening credit sequence for a Batman movie honestly, than a horror movie, which is funny to me because both Alan and I said that out loud the first time we rewatched this last week. And lo and behold, James Newton Howard, who composed the music for The Happening, also did music for The Dark Knight and Batman Begins. File that under things that don't even remotely surprise me. <laughs> of course, Howard has also made good music for Shyamalan in the past for films like The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, but 
This just completely misses the mark, which is fine because that's what everything and everyone does in The Happening. <laughs> Something else to note, a lot of the characters in this movie don't have names. So to save time, I'm just going to refer to any character that doesn't have a name by the name of their actor. So the story starts with two women sitting on a bench, and those women are Kristen Connolly from The Cabin in the Woods and Alison Philand. The opening scene in this film is, in my personal opinion, one of the worst, but it's also handy as it is indicative of the kind of editing that we can expect. The editing is a huge part of how terrible this movie is. I would love to blame everything on Shyamalan, but I, I can't. This film is so poorly put together. It was edited by Conrad Buff, which just boggles the mind because Buff also worked on Terminator 2, True Lies, Spaceballs, Mystery Men, and Titanic for fuck's sake. This is a very seasoned editor, so I just, I have no idea what happened. So the girls are reading on the bench, Allison is disoriented, and Kristen hears a scream off in the distance. She looks up suddenly, and she says that it looks like there are people in the park clawing at themselves, which sounds pretty gruesome, but we have no way of knowing because they never actually show it. What they do show are shots of the park filled with people just going on about their day. I'm pretty sure that this opening scene is what planted the first seeds of a semi-popular fan theory that all the events of the happening are a metaphor for mass hysteria. And I mean, maybe maybe that's true, but it's it's so inconsistent. We go from her describing suicide in the park to seeing nothing of the kind to everyone around her stopping like they're frozen in time, which by the way, makes no sense to me, but I, I really like the way it looks. And somehow though, everyone else in Central Park is sort of frozen in time. Kristen Connolly is unaffected and she watches as her friend removes one of her hair sticks and stabs it into her own neck. It is a nice effect. I don't understand why Kristen Connolly's character is unaffected. There are theories and I am aware of the theories, but none of them satisfy me. So <laughs> I, I, I'm going to stick with I don't understand it. We move from Central Park to a construction site, presumably nearby, where a bunch of construction workers are standing around telling dirty jokes because construction workers have to be horny in movies. It's it's like a rule. And their fun is cut short when a bunch of their co-workers start killing themselves by leaping off of the building they're working on. The first body falls and this kicks off a series of leaps, the final shot of which is shot from below and it really is a great shot. I've read several reviews of the film that criticize it for spending too much time on the suicides, like that it was really just an excuse for Shyamalan to show the different ways in which people could kill themselves. And I gotta say, um, I disagree completely because there, there isn't enough of that in this movie, in my opinion. I feel like if they had prioritized the suicides, it would have been a much scarier film. I, I'm not saying that I want to see people commit suicide en masse, but I mean, if you're going to make a horror movie about it, fucking make a horror movie about it. Instead, we just have a lot of melodramatic reactions to the haunting visuals, and it kind of pisses me off. But we move from New York City to Philadelphia to the classroom of Elliot Moore, played by Mark Wahlberg in what is 100% the worst performance of his career. And I don't blame him at all for it. As this film progresses, you can really see on his face how exhausted and irritated he is with it. Not only is the role poorly written, I think that Mark Wahlberg knew how miscast he was. He seems out of breath through the entire movie, and he's talking like 
half an octave higher than he normally does. And they ride hard the whole science teacher thing. But him being a science teacher honestly doesn't help him or the people around him at all. Elliot could have been anything. He could have been a plumber or a trumpet player and the movie would play out in exactly the same way. But he teaches high school science and on this particular day, he's teaching his students about a bunch of bees that have gone missing all over the country. He tries to get the kids talking and his voice just keeps getting like higher and higher the less interested the kids are in the bees. One of his students, Jake, tells him that he doesn't care that the bees are disappearing. And Elliot urges him to take an interest in science. But instead of explaining the scientifically sound reasons that something like a bee extinction would hurt the world, he just teases Jake about being a heartthrob. All the kids laugh because Elliot is such a funny, relatable teacher. And then Jake says he figures the bees vanishing is just an act of nature that they will never fully understand. In true M. Night fashion, he tells the audience what his twist is in one of the first scenes of the film. The catch here, of course, is that the twist isn't really a twist, it's it's just lazy writing. The vice principal pulls Elliot out of his classroom for a meeting in the auditorium, where the principal informs all the teachers that something is happening in New York. He says he's not sure of the scale of the attack, but that they think it's terrorists and that it's an airborne toxic chemical. And Elliot seems surprised that the attack took place in Central Park. If it were terrorists and they were trying to go for like a heavily populated area, why wouldn't they pick Central Park? Elliot returns to class and dismisses his students while making them recite this sort of revised version of the scientific method, but he doesn't call it the scientific method. It seriously feels like Shyamalan Frankensteined this script together with bits and pieces of Wikipedia pages and like popular science articles that he tweaked just enough to sound slightly original. <laughs> After the kids leave, we're introduced to Elliot's best friend, Julian, played by John Leguizamo. In my opinion, Leguizamo and Wahlberg are kind of on an even keel here, acting-wise, although Leguizamo does have the luxury of talking in his normal voice, so... I have to say I actually prefer his performance in this to Wahlberg's, just like by a tiny little hair. The character of Julian, though, has almost no personality. We learn that he's married, has a young daughter named Jess, and that he has a mother who's worried about him. Oh, also that he's a math teacher. Much like Elliot, Julian's entire personality kind of hinges on what he does for a living. He likes math, and he uses a lot of math words, lest we forget how much he likes it. Julian tells Elliot that his mother is freaked out by the attack in New York and invites Elliot and his wife Alma to his mother's outside the city until the whole thing blows over. Elliot calls Alma and asks if she minds if they stay with Julian for a little while, and we're supposed to get the impression that Alma is in a mood. We don't hear her side of the conversation, and it's over pretty quickly, but he exasperatedly asks her if she's okay a couple of times. We get the idea that things are awkward between them. Elliot and Julian leave the school together, and they have a ridiculous conversation conversation that sounds totally unlike anything that real people would ever say to each other. First, Elliot tells Julian that Alma is acting weird, and he says it in this very distressed way. When Julian presses him, Elliot gets even more worked up and tells him to calm down. In response to this, Julian tells Elliot this story about the day he and Alma were married, saying he walked in on Alma in the waiting room and she was crying. This might have been an emotional moment were it not for the fact that we haven't even met Alma yet, and it just the whole thing feels so forced and extra positional. He also starts this little speech by saying, I'm going to tell you something you should never tell your best friend. And Elliot responds with, why is everybody saying that? Which is odd because we haven't heard anyone say that to Elliot 
at all. It's such a weird scene, but it teaches us that Alma has commitment issues, which is very important to the side plot. We leave the guys outside of the school and are introduced to Alma through a cute scene where she's sitting in the living room of her and Elliot's apartment, avoiding a phone call from a guy named Joey. I personally think this scene is cute because I like Zoe Deschanel. I think that when given good material, she can be an excellent physical comedian. And I think if this scene had existed instead in an episode of New Girl, it would have been great, but it feels so out of place. Her phone is vibrating like crazy, and she's handling it like she doesn't know how phones work. This goes on for some time until Elliot comes home and the two of them watch the news. A lot of the details of the horrific thing happening in this movie are told through the news. If our task is to look at the happening through the lens of a people surviving a global health crisis, the whole exposition through the news, it works and it is relatable. During a time of crisis like this one, everyone is looking to the news for help. Unfortunately, so much of what we learn from the news in the happening is either ignored or contradicted or it comes in at really convenient times and it doesn't seem to help anyone. So I guess actually... I mean, in some ways, it, it is a lot like real-world news. <laughs> Elliot packs up for their stay with Julian's family, and as he does this, he grabs a mood ring. And the mood ring is important. Kind of. I mean, as much as anything is important in the happening. <laughs> Elliot and Alma then go to Grand Central Station to catch a train with Julian. Julian has brought his daughter Jess with him, but he says his wife got held up, so she'll have to catch the next train and meet them out there. And we then have what, for me... Okay, here's the thing. I'm not a film student. I honestly have had zero formal training that might qualify me to say this, but I'm, I'm saying it nonetheless. This is one of the worst scenes that has ever existed in the history of film. It is so bad. I'm, I'm actually like digging my fingernails into my palm. <laughs> Alma awkwardly says hello to Julian, who acts just over the top awkward back at her and then tells her he's happy she chose to come, which is supposed to be like a pointed wink at what Elliot told him at the school earlier. This sends Alma into a kind of emotional spiral where she immediately is like almost crying and she pulls Elliot aside and they have this argument about, you know, Elliot airing their dirty laundry in public. She also points out that she doesn't like to share her feelings with the world. She doesn't like to show her emotions. Never mind the fact that she's completely contradicting that by being very noticeably upset just two feet away from Julian and surrounded by an entire train station full of people. And then she says she's upset and she doesn't want to sit with them on the train. Afterward, Elliot gives Julian a hard time. And I swear, if you put like bouncy slapstick sitcom music under the scene, you would think you were watching a Disney Channel original. That is how cheesy and weird all the dialogue is in the scene. Also, several lines here are delivered off camera, which happens a lot in The Happening. And at first, I assumed it was because of like sound issues that the off-screen lines were dubbed, but the more I listen, the less it sounds like ADR. The result is that several scenes, particularly this one of Julian and Elliot at the train station, feel a lot more like someone from the crew is just running lines with Leguizamo before actual filming begins. It's bizarre how how bad some of the stuff in this movie is. We leave Elliot and the gang at the train station, and now we are at a park in Philadelphia with more heavy-handed, ominous music telling us to be scared, goddammit, because scary stuff is happening. We see a woman walking her dog, a mom yelling at her son about something, the wind is rustling the trees, and then we're on a crowded street beside the park where one of my personal favorite moments happens. So it's kind of nice. You know, we had this absolute crapgasm of a scene, followed by a scene that I actually think is kind of neat. Everybody stops walking. Again, a cool effect. 
It makes no sense to me, except for a police officer and a cab driver. For some reason, there are always like one or two people who are mysteriously able to move and talk when this happens. We cut back to the dog that that woman was walking. It is now running free, and the cop who was just talking to the cab driver shoots himself. We don't see the shot, just his legs, and then him falling to the ground with a little blood spurting out of the middle of his forehead. The cop drops the gun. The cab driver gets out of the car, walks over, picks it up, and shoots himself. Then he drops the gun, which is picked up by a woman who also shoots herself. It's a neat little sequence, all done in one shot, and I like it. Now we're back on the very crowded train where Alma is talking on the phone with Joey, and we learn that he and Alma went on some kind of a dessert date after work once and that he needs to chill the fuck out. Evidently, Joey is voiced by M. Night Shyamalan, but I can't hear the voice at all on the version of the film I own, so I don't know. Maybe there's a different version out there with audible dialogue on his end, but I can't hear anything. While Alma yells at Joey for calling her too much, he interrupts her to tell her about what I think is an attack in Boston, based on an exchange between Alma and Elliot in a minute. At the same time, news is coming in all over the train about the attack in Philadelphia. Julian gets his wife on the phone, and he can't really understand her, so there's a lot of shouting, and eventually he says she's on her way to New Jersey. But he doesn't just say New Jersey. He tells his eight-year-old daughter that his wife is heading to the town of Princeton, which is such a stupid fucking sentence. Not once in my life have I ever been like, hey, you want to come with me to that show tomorrow night? It's in the town of Lincoln. <sighs> Elliot again thinks it's odd that the attack happened in a park, and now, with it having been the second one, I can actually understand why he'd be a little suspicious of it. Alma and Elliot are talking about the attack in Boston when the train stops and they kick all the passengers off in the town of Filbert. It doesn't make, it's so, it, <laughs> the conductor and his coworkers are completely ignoring the passengers that they just ejected from their train for absolutely no reason, and Elliot breathlessly pleads with them to tell them what's going on, and what this scene does more than anything is confirm for me that M. Night Shyamalan has never ridden a train or spoken with human beings. Everyone from the train packs into this little greasy spoon called the Filbert Diner, and Julian leaves Jess with Elliot while he orders some food. We get a really cute moment here where Elliot shows Jess the mood ring he brought from home. It turns yellow when she puts it on and he lies to her about what that means. He says yellow means she's going to laugh and then acts all adorable until she does. This is another moment referenced heavily by people who believe that the plants aren't actually killing anyone. Elliot is demonstrating the power of suggestive influence. And honestly, if the rest of the movie surrounding this exchange had been even remotely good, this might have been one of the more poignant moments in it. Of course, this moment is interrupted by a woman sitting next to Elliot who shows him a video of a man letting himself be mauled by lions at the Philadelphia Zoo. Then someone brings out a TV and everyone in the diner watches more of the news where we learn that the attacks are localized to the northeastern US and that smaller and smaller towns are being affected. One of the guys in the diner remarks that it looks like nothing's occurring about 90 miles from where they are, which is oddly specific and again, not the way I think a real human being would have said this. I think an actual person probably would have said something like, hey, people aren't dying in Maryland and we're about 100 miles from the border, so let's go there. But that's just my opinion, developed from 37 years of interacting with human people. <laughs> right after he says this, the power goes out at the diner and everyone panics and leaves. It's at this point that Julian separates from the group to go look for his wife. He leaves his eight-year-old daughter and like they don't make any plans at all. He doesn't, he's just, he's going to head toward the town of Princeton, I guess. Anyway, Julian and Elliot have this melodramatic exchange where we are reminded again that Julian is a math teacher as he throws out this arbitrary percentage. Like there's a 62% chance that the town of Princeton hasn't been hit by 
whatever this is. When Alma goes to take Jess's hand, Julian gets super intense super fast and tells her not to take Jess's hand unless she means it. Elliot, Alma, and Jess hitch a ride with the only people left in the parking lot, Frank Collison and Victoria Clark, whose names in the script, by the way, are nursery owner and nursery owner's wife. So they pile into Frank Collison's car and swing by his plant nursery to pick up some stuff for the road. The nursery is conveniently situated a few miles away from a power plant, creating some nice, if not a little on the nose, imagery. I hear people complain about shots like that first one we see of the nursery, but I would personally rather have that. I would rather have the movie show us the irony rather than try to spell it out in terrible dialogue all the time. They get to the nursery and instead of going inside the house while the couple pack their things, everybody goes into the greenhouse, which is hilarious because Frank Collison tells them while they are standing inside the greenhouse that he believes that plants are responsible for the mass suicides. Also, Elliot, a science teacher, immediately dismisses the plant theory. <laughs> Throughout the scene, we get some more of that could-be-cute dialogue about hot dogs that make me wonder what the hell I'm watching because it feels like a comedy. If you threw a poop joke into their conversation at the greenhouse, it would feel appropriate. This is also where Frank tells Elliot that plants react to vocal stimulus, something Elliot should already know as a science teacher, since even I know this, and I'm not a science teacher, but okay. We leave the greenhouse behind for a few minutes to check in on Julian, who is still on the road in a soft top Jeep of some kind with the impatient people from the diner. As they make their way down a wooded road in what I think is a kind of residential area, they see a line of bodies hanging from these trees. This is definitely a moment wherein I, I kind of understand what people mean when they say it feels like the movie exists just to show us different ways that people can commit suicide, only because it seems extremely impractical. And what's even sillier is that nobody in the car actually sees the bodies until the camera sees the bodies. A girl in the back seat starts screaming bloody murder and Julian tries to calm her down with a math riddle. When he reveals the answer to the riddle, he does so while looking at a rip in the roof of the car, which this is another moment that I actually really like. I mean, up to this point, the film has really just been a series of events with very little character development. And so I don't actually feel anything. But if I did, if I cared about Julian, this would be a really powerful moment. Immediately afterward, the driver of the car drives into a tree and he goes flying through the windshield. Also kind of a neat effect, but Julian is somehow okay enough to walk out into the street, sit down, pick up a shard of glass from the wreckage, and slit his wrists. So Julian is dead, and we're back in Frank Collison's car. We are listening to more news, which takes me back to the train conductor because the radios are still working, and we know TV is still a thing wherever there's power. Drives me crazy, that fucking train thing. Elliot is looking at a map and giving Frank directions to get out of the state when they see a bunch of dead bodies in the road ahead. They turn around to avoid said bodies, and drive in the opposite direction until they come across an army truck driven by Private Oster, played by Jeremy Strong. Private Oster is a shaky, dorky little guy who tells the gang that he found bodies all tangled up in the barbed wire surrounding his military base. They're trying to decide on the best course of action moving forward when more cars pull up and everyone starts exchanging information. In the back of Frank's car, we're reminded of that whole side story with Alma and Joey. Elliot sees Joey's name on her phone and asks who it is. She tells him it's no one, and 
nobody cares. Meanwhile, Private Oster decides that it'll be best if everyone stays put, and Frank tells Elliot that there's a woman on her phone with her daughter in the town of Princeton. Everybody gathers around this woman, played by Carrie O'Malley from Annabelle, as she's mid-conversation with her daughter, but somehow hasn't actually asked her anything about what's going on. It's not until Elliot walks up to her that it's like the conversation started. There is so much of that in this movie. The film has no peripheral vision. If it's not happening on screen, it's not happening. So the conversation opens once Elliot arrives, with Carrie telling her daughter to stay near an open window and wait for someone to come and get her. And Elliot immediately is like, no, tell her to stay away from the window. Then her daughter tells her that everyone in Princeton is dead. Shortly thereafter, her daughter starts repeating the word calculus over and over again before a very loud noise ends the call and her daughter is presumed dead. So then Elliot has this kind of breakdown. They are surrounded by plants. It's like a little four-way road, tons of grass, and trees scattered everywhere. And Elliot just told Alma that he's starting to think Frank might be right, that it might be plants that are causing these suicides. And what is he? He just goes and like sits down and curls up in a sad little ball in the grass. Private Oster introduces everyone to one of the only other named characters in the film, Mr. Collins, a realtor who advises everyone to make their way to a lesser populated county nearby. I was pleased to learn that Mr. Collins is played by Joel De La Fuente, who plays Inspector Quito in Man in the High Castle, and I fucking adore him, which explains why his lines, although there are only like two, are some of the best delivered lines in the film. <laughs> so everyone breaks into groups and just starts wandering through the fields towards Arundel County, which... Okay, I mean, fine, get to a place where you feel safe, but why couldn't you drive your cars across the field? I typically don't go after characters for making dumb decisions. In horror films, I don't. People do incredibly stupid things when they're scared because they're just not thinking clearly. But this, this is ridiculous. I think your fight or flight instinct would be telling you to stay out of the open fields as much as possible. Your fight or flight instinct would drive you indoors during a situation like this. <sighs> But you know, plants got a plant, I guess, and people need to be out in the nature for the plants to plant. <laughs> While they're crossing the field, Alma confesses to Elliot that she had tiramisu with Joey, who she knows from work, and Elliot seems upset, but the wind starts blowing and two guys in the group ahead of theirs start fighting. And suddenly, everyone in that group freezes in place. I think this in particular has a lot to do with the belief that the plants respond to negative energy. I will get into the problem with that theory a little bit later, but for right now, um, Sure, they start fighting, the wind and the plants get angry, and they attack. Private Oster starts shouting a, like a military chant about his gun, unholsters it, and shoots himself off screen. Elliot's group reacts to what is now a series of gunshots, but just like the sound of them. So wherever they are now, they are too far away to actually see what's happening somehow. I'm going to say that as is par for the course for this film, Group A... Elliot and Alma's group can't see the guns being fired in group B uh, because they're happening off screen. Everybody starts looking to Elliot for answers for some reason, and we get these very uncomfortably close shots. And I like Mark Wahlberg's face. I think he has a sweet face, but I do not need to see it at such close range for so long, especially when, you know, he's so fucking exhausted because he had to be in the happening. People are looking to Elliot for answers, and he's trying to quickly apply the scientific method to this new situation that they're in to figure out a solution. I'm not making this up. This is, this is how this happens. This is the movie. Elliot concludes that it must, in fact, be the plants, and that they attacked the other group because it was larger than theirs. He suggests they split up, yet still staying in kind of a group and stay ahead of the wind. Then the wind attacks them. <laughs> 
And by that, I mean, they're running through a field and a semi-strong wind blows and they try to shield themselves from it, but it's wind, so they can't. But nothing happens. They don't kill themselves. For some fucking reason, they're immune. Or they don't set it off because of their good vibes or whatever. It's one of the least scary scenes I have ever seen in a movie that's trying to be scary, and I love it. The only people left in Elliot's group at this point are Elliot, obviously, Alma, Jess, and two boys named Jared and Josh. When I first made my preliminary notes for this episode, I wrote their names down as being Jake and Billy. That's how unimportant and briefly featured these characters are. I could not remember them and just went with two generic boy names. <laughs> Continuing across the field, they find an abandoned truck with a working radio, through which we hear someone arguing on a talk show about how there are more nuclear power plants in the Northeast than anywhere else, and they leave the truck and find an abandoned home. Inside the house, they find a map and make a plan and have yet still more ridiculous dialogue, where Alma is still shocked by everything, and Elliot is still pretty much useless. <laughs> Alma takes Jess to the bathroom, and we get the infamous Elliot talks to a plant scene, which I love so much, and it's such a complicated love. It's one of the few moments in the film where you can actually tell what Shyamalan was trying to do. He was trying to be funny, but because of the entire movie in which this scene is nestled, the scene really does not come across as funny in the way that Shyamalan meant it to be. It was so unfunny that it looped back around and became funny again. <laughs> Elliot whispering to a plastic plant that they just need to use the bathroom almost makes sitting through the whole movie worth it on its own. The house that they're in turns out to be a model home, actually. Like, it's not just the plant that's plastic everything in the home is fake. And I also really like that. The nature of the home is slowly revealed in pretty cute ways, and it was surprisingly clever. This scene is also scored with like a kind of elevator music. I wish there had been a lot more of it, not just because I found it genuinely entertaining, but also because, as I said, it just makes good sense to stay indoors during an airborne attack. But more people show up at the house, and because of the whole group theory, they have to leave. Once outside, they turn to look back at the people who had shown up at the model home. And Ellie it realizes that their group is pretty large, like it's two groups actually coming together. Of course, they all stop moving because the wind is here, and one guy turns on a big riding lawnmower. At least I think it was a riding lawnmower. It was some kind of giant, like industrial lawnmower. And then he lays down in its path, and fucking Elliot, Elliot stops running away to stop and stare at this riding mower, which is very slowly creeping toward the guy. Why? is he just watching it happen? And it's not even an especially brutal moment. I've seen far gorier lawnmower deaths. Back on the run, the kids start grilling Elliot about his love life instead of, you know, mourning the death of their parents. And then they find another working radio just hanging from a fence, and we get yet still more unhelpful information from the news. It cuts out immediately and contributes nothing. I do want to go back for a second, though, to that theory about the film being a metaphor for mass hysteria. If everything that's happening is is all in the characters' heads. It doesn't make the movie a good movie, but it does explain running into functional radios no matter where they are and continually getting bits and pieces of the news as things kind of escalate. I think that if it had been written differently, shot differently, or just made with you know, anything even remotely resembling effort, I think that that could have been used um, 
in a very smart way. It could have served as a pretty powerful commentary on fear-mongering. I think the whole news thing really did have a lot of potential. It just it just wasn't realized. The group ends up outside of the house with its doors and windows all boarded up, and Alma insists that Jess needs food, so despite the house being pretty uninviting, they are determined to get inside. There are people holed up in this house, though, and they don't want to be bothered, so they tell Elliot that they don't want them coming in and potentially letting whatever's outside kill them inside. Which, honestly... I know these people are about to get pretty fucked up pretty fast, but I'm with them on this one. When something like this is happening, you don't go wandering around outside. So, I mean, I don't know, man. I get it. I get why these people don't want anyone coming in, why they don't want to open their home. They do make a comment about whatever's in the air being a toxic gas, which, of course, it isn't, but that does not make them wrong about how to combat the problem. (laughs) Elliot and the gang do not care about social distancing or personal property, and they insist on coming inside because they want food. And when the insiders continue to reject them, Elliot does what every normal human being would do. He sings a verse from Blackwater by the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> I love it too, though, because Mark Wahlberg looks so irritated. <laughs> I mean, granted, this this whole situation may have been a little tainted for me because of the behind-the-scenes footage of Mark Wahlberg trying to understand Shyamalan's logic. And Shyamalan just condescendingly cracks up like, oh, Mark Wahlberg. One of the kids, Josh, gets impatient and starts cussing at the people in the house and banging on the siding, which results in both he and Jared being shot and killed through the windows. Because again, sure, if you are mean enough to keep strangers out of your home during an airborne attack, you're mean enough to kill children, I guess. Either way, it happens, and Elliot freaks out and cries over Josh's body for a lot longer than anyone should. Alma comes over to him and slowly raises his head up in this very soap opera-style movement and shakily tells him that they have to protect Jess. There is no way that they wouldn't have been shot and killed in the time it took them to leave. Next, we get a little series of quick scenes showing people watching and listening to the news in different parts of the country and in different stages of preparedness for an attack, which is a cool idea, and it's fun to see, like, Elliot elderly ladies in gas masks and a whole family piled into a bathtub, but it adds absolutely nothing to the story and seems completely pointless once the movie is over. We get some bullshit prediction about the event's trajectory, which how could anyone know? Like they say that they expect it to taper off after X amount of hours. There's no way that they could have predicted the event's trajectory, having no idea what it actually is. Back with Elliot, Alma, and Jess, they find another house, which also looks abandoned, and Elliot, who learned nothing from their last encounter, goes up to check it out. There he meets Mrs. Jones, played by Betty Buckley, also known as the single worst character in a film already rife with terrible characters. I mean no disrespect to Betty Buckley, I think her performance of the character as she was written was great. This has nothing to do with Betty Buckley, this is all about the existence of the character itself. When I talk about M. Night Shyamalan, the word that I use most often is heavy-handed. There is so very little subtlety to the bulk of what he's done as a filmmaker, and I feel like Mrs. Jones is probably the best example of that. You can tell that he only put her in the film because it was lacking scares, even with the kids getting killed. And it's this kind of thing that reinforces my belief that this this was not intended to be funny. He was trying to scare the audience. It all feels so unnecessary to me and over the top. We learn that Mrs. Jones is a recluse who doesn't have electricity, and she doesn't want to know what's going on in the world. She interrupts Alma when she tries to tell her. She says, I don't want to know. She's rude and polite to Elliot in equal measure, 
invites them to eat with her, tells them a little bit about the history of the property, laughs with them about the trials and tribulations of love, then smacks Jess's hand away when she tries to take a cookie that's sitting right out in the middle of the table where they've been eating, then tells them she has to let them spend the night. And they do it. She's been behaving so erratically, so weirdly. She struck the child that you're taking care of, and you just, you're gonna stay the night, I guess, because now all of a sudden you realize that it's important to stay indoors. It's absurd, but I love that it happened, because if they hadn't agreed to spend the night, we wouldn't have gotten the most hilarious moment in the movie, where Mrs. Jones and uh, Elliot run into each other in the hallway at night, and she accuses Elliot of plotting to kill her in her sleep, to which Elliot responds, What? No! And he, like, shakes his head back and forth. Is this a comedy? Is this a comedy? Another classic sitcom moment buried in this very serious environmental cautionary tale. The next morning, Elliot goes in to check on Mrs. Jones to find a weird doll lying in her bed that he, for some reason, believes is her, and she freaks out about him being in there and tells them to leave. Elliot tries to talk sense into her, but then she leaves the house for some reason and goes out into the garden. This is what gets me about this character. She was going to die alone in the garden, regardless of anything that happened before. It would have made a much bigger impact on the audience if she had been kind, if she had been likable. There was no reason to make her so manic. And I, I mean, I guess if the plants need bad vibes to do their thing, maybe Shyamalan couldn't think of another reason that she would be so upset when she goes out to the garden, but she goes out there, she's really aggro, the wind starts blowing, and she starts walking backwards. Realizing what's happening, Elliot locks himself up in the house, and Mrs. Jones begins smashing her face through all of the windows. Elliot calls for Alma, but she and Jess are out in the spring house, where there's a speaking tube connected to the main house. Elliot goes into the room with his half of the speaking tube and talks to Alma through it, telling her to close the doors and windows, and she asks him why. He tells her that Mrs. Jones died, and he and Alma have this big heart-to-heart, -heart, reminiscing about the mood ring and their first date and a bunch of crap that I just don't care about. He says he's confused about Mrs. Jones. Jones's death because she was alone when she died, and from there concludes that if they're going to die, they should die together. So he goes outside and walks to the spring house to be with Alma. And rather than wait for him with the eight-year-old that Julian put in their care, Alma decides to take Jess outside with her and meet Elliot in the middle of the yard, because fuck you, Jess, I guess. If we have to die for our love, you're gonna die with us. None of that matters, though, because the event ended moments before they stepped outside, and nothing happens to them. Cut to three months later. We're back in Philadelphia, and somehow Alma and Elliot are Jess's adoptive parents now. The schools are opening back up, and it's Jess's first day. Jess tells tells Aunt Alma that she loves her, and the two hug, and yay, they know how to express their emotions now. Then we see a scientist on television insisting that the event was caused by plants, and apparently people don't believe him. He also says it was an act of nature that they'll never fully understand, hearkening back to that first classroom scene. <laughs> what a twist! <laughs> Wait, so apparently the reason people don't believe the plants actually did it is because the event was localized to the northeastern United States. Even though, as the news reminded us again and again, that experts were analyzing all the data they had autopsies, they were running lab tests that would presumably prove plants were responsible. All of that just gets thrown out the window because natural phenomenon never happens in just one place. Ever? <laughs> okay. Oh, also Alma is pregnant. Yay, babies. So Elliot, Alma, Jess, and their unborn baby live happily ever after. But the film's not over because we have to see what's happening in Paris. 
At least I think it's Paris. It's hilarious because this movie tells us the exact location and time before like every major event scene before this, but fails to tell us exactly where and when this final event is happening. <laughs> Two men are walking together through the park, and one of them says he should drop his bike off at his apartment before work. He then repeats that sentence, somebody screams off screen, and again we see a shot of the park and everything is normal. The disoriented guy continues to repeat himself, and his friend turns to see that everyone in the park is no longer moving. Overhead, crazy clouds roll in that confuse me even more than I already was, and the movie fades to an immediate Shyamalan credit, and then it's done. So that's it. That is The Happening. All in all, it's definitely one of the sloppier movies I've seen. It feels so very phoned in. But since its release 12 years ago, it has grown on me. And a lot of the things that used to provoke annoyed outrage from me, I now actually find quite charming. Don't get me wrong, there are still some things about this movie that piss me off, but I really only feel angry about them when I remember that it was made by M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I had so much fun watching this movie in preparation for this episode. I actually watched it three times, which is a lot for me, even on a review week. And the third time that I watched it, I went into it feeling like excited, like oh, I get to watch The Happening again. I never thought I would ever feel that way. I want to thank my patrons again, Xerxes, Alan, Mel, Suzy Q, and Eli. Thank you guys so much for voting for this topic. I truly underestimated just how much fun it would be. As for the big question, has the pandemic made The Happening less terrible? I'm going to say no. Um, no, it's still really terrible. But there were a few moments where without even really thinking about it, I was drawing parallels between what was happening in the film and what's happening in the world right now. So I, I do think that it is, in a way, relevant to what we're all going through. I would say the thing that has done it the biggest favor, however, is just the time that has passed since it was released. If you are someone who hasn't seen the film in a very long time, I would recommend giving it another chance. Just don't expect the quality of the film to be in any way good, and you'll be fine. You might get a kick out of it. I certainly did. All right, before I wrap up tonight, I have a couple of exciting announcements regarding this podcast, or at least I'm excited about them. <laughs> because I have been on furlough since around the beginning of March, I've had much more time to devote to this project, so I've been planning ahead for Final Girl Friday in a way that I really hadn't been before the pandemic. Final Girl Friday now has its very own website, finalgirlfriday.com. It is a total work in progress, and I'm not amazing at web design, but it exists, and I am so happy that it exists. My hope for the website moving forward is that it will house episodes, obviously, transcripts of the episodes, merchandise, which I also now have. Final Girl Friday has its very own t-shirt. I feel so official. I would also like to keep a kind of developer diary and a blog where I can devote time to movies that don't make it into these episodes. And probably more, but those are my plans. So if you want, go to finalgirlfriday.com and check out my crappy web design. And keep an eye out because it might be less crappy in the future. <laughs> Secondly, I am pleased to announce May's B-Movie of the Month. B-Movie of the Month is something that I have wanted to do since I started doing the podcast. I always knew that I wanted to select one movie to kind of celebrate throughout the entirety of the month and wrap each month up with a full review and analysis of that film and a giveaway. Because this is my birthday month, in fact, today, May 9th, which is technically Saturday, not Friday, but let's move on. Today is my birthday. And so I chose one of my personal favorite horror films from the year I was born, 1983. Without further ado, May's B-movie of the month is... 
Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp was released on November 18, 1983, and stars the lovely Felissa Rose as troubled youth Angela Baker struggling to find her place amid the mean girls and horny boys of Camp Arawak. I first saw Sleepaway Camp when I was around 19 years old, I want to say, and it shocked me to my very core, haunted me for many years, and lives on in my memory as one of the most quotable summer camp slashers I have ever seen. <laughs> In addition to taking a long look at the film, at the end of this month, I will also be giving away some Sleepaway Camp swag. If you would like to participate in that giveaway, tune in next week as I will be divulging the details of how to enter in next week's episode. If you're new here and you're interested in getting involved in the podcast, you can join the Final Girl Friday Discord by clicking on the open invitation in the description of this podcast on Anchor. I think that's all I've got for tonight, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. Stay safe, stay sane. Keep an eye on your houseplants, and until next time, creep it real. <laughs>